Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief for EW10 News, also a Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, the author or co-author of more than 50 books, including the first English-language biography of Pope Francis. Matthew, thank you, first of all, for sitting in for me last week. Thank you. Oh, it's it's a privilege. And, you know, your listeners always hear me say it, but uh, I can't possibly replace you, but I can try to fill in for you. You're very kind. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's, it's nice to be able to go away and not worry. <laughs> so thank you. Um, I want to talk about this interview uh, that Pope Francis did, apparently with the Associated Press, and yes. little snippets are circulating. Why don't you characterize it as a whole first, and then we'll go to the particular statements within it. Yeah, this is uh, one of the most expansive interviews. Now, let's bear in mind that he has been giving a lot of interviews over the last years. Uh, This to Nicole Winfield uh, of the Associated Press. Uh, By my count, uh, at least in the original Spanish that I was reading through, uh, it's including the questions, but those are fairly short. It's about 22,000 words. Yeah, that's that's So this is a hefty, hefty interview. And it covers a wide range of topics uh, that are important to Francis. Uh, so he talks about the, the passing of Pope Emeritus Benedict, of critics. He talks about uh, South Sudan and the, the impending trip there, as well as the Congo. China, which where he, he said, I think, some interesting things about uh, the China situation, in particular Cardinal Zen, uh, who visited him during the Benedict's funeral. Uh, he talks as, as well about Germany. And then the, one of the, the big takeaways from this were his comments on uh, homosexuality uh, that I think probably got the most play, especially yeah. in the secular media. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Um, he said being homosexual is not a crime. Uh, it's not a crime. Yes, but it's a sin, which, of course, is a little misleading, too. I mean, homosexual acts are sinful. Uh, being homosexual is not sinful. But he's, he's again, this is a popular interview. And he's Mm -hmm. making a distinction between a sin and a crime, which is what he wanted to to make. I I am curious about this. I mean, uh, the Church teaches that we should do away with every uh, bit of unjust discrimination uh, against uh, people, uh, homosexual people. But I'm wondering how this plays in nations which still retain laws against sodomy. I know Muslim nations uh, often have laws against sodomy. Well, that's right. Uh, so I think there are a couple things that is often the case with uh, Francis here. The, the the first is that you sometimes have to read and reread uh, what he says in order, in, in the full context of the quote, in order to understand fully what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And. That has, I think, been the source of confusion over the years throughout this pontificate. I think of who am I to judge, for example. So at first blush, I think a lot of uh, people were looking at this and saying, well, is the Pope trying to distance church teaching, that sort of thing? And mm-hmm. the answer is solidly no. Right. And here he's uh, reiterating the teachings of the church. Uh, 2357, 58, 59 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, as you and I have talked, where this issue in particular comes up, you know, the, the, the catechism is very clear, uh, and it uses uh, very precise language that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered, and that's a direct quote from the mm-hmm. catechism. But then it also stresses 
that uh, that every effort should be made, uh, every sign or unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. Right. Mm-hmm. So what Francis tends to do is to simply reverse the order of those paragraphs. Yeah. So he, he basically starts with every possible form of unjust discrimination in this regard should be avoided. Yep. But then somewhere along the line, he always in some fashion reiterates what the teachings of the church are. Now, there are many in secular media and I dare say many in progressive Catholic media uh, who tend to disregard the fact that he's actually reciting that other paragraph. Right, right, yeah. It, this, this interview is a particular case in point of doing that. You know, I, this comes up at a time when we also have Cardinal McElroy uh, of San Diego writing on ra- the need to be radically inclusive in the church and using that phrase as a way of, in my estimation, of smuggling in acceptance of homosexual acts. Um, now, I don't think Francis said anything in particular about Cardinal McElroy's uh, talk no. and, the, and then the article that appeared in uh, America magazine. Uh, no, that's right. Yeah, okay. uh, there, there's no reference to him. Uh, and I think uh, one thing that you can look at uh, in this particular uh, interview uh, specific to this topic uh, is Francis is, I would argue, less concerned with a place like the United States and much more concerned because he notes it in his interview. Uh, he cites about 50-some, I think there could be as many as 67, almost 70 countries around the world that have different approaches legally uh, to homosexuality and, oh. in, and homosexual acts up to uh, arrest, imprisonment, right. and even the death penalty. That's right. And That's I'm right. sure you and I could, without even looking at a map, could, could pick out most of the ones where this is likely to be the case. Mm-hmm. And I think Francis is, is sending a message, as he often does, in his own way uh, to these countries, that this is something that is not acceptable as far as the church is concerned. And then he's sending that message to bishops that uh, bishops should not in any way support laws yeah. that potentially criminalize this and, and could potentially lead to the death penalty right. uh, for this. Right. So, so he sees this more as a as a— Human rights issue, yes, a legal issue, and that's why his his great focus here that this is a sin. Yes, he recognizes it, but we have to be clear: we're talking about homosexual acts. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said it's a crime. Yeah, so he's making a, a key distinction, and I, he's also giving uh, permission, if you will, to, to bishops in countries in which homosexuality is criminalized, he's giving them permission to actually uh, work to abolish uh, those criminal laws. So, um, right. I think that's in, in much the same way that um, we would work toward, and, and he notes, for example, the death penalty, right. which is something that's very important to him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did, what did, he ha- did he have a lot to say about the German synodal way? Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of key developments uh, that in some cases have been ignored by some in the media. Uh, Pope Francis in this uh, interview uh, makes it clear once again uh, that as far as he's concerned, uh, the way he describes it is the German experience is not helpful. <laughs> that's, that's, well, that's actually a pretty strong statement. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but then he also notes uh, that it is elitist, unhelpful, and runs the risk of bringing ideological harm to, to the church. 
And this is uh, a, a pope, remember, who has even publicly said he does not like ideological bishops. Right. Right. So this is about as dramatic yep. and drastic and radical an ideological approach to church teaching as you could possibly have. Yeah. Yeah. So the way he's, he's describing it is that it is uh, the help this elitist German path. And that, that's an interesting turn of phrase. Uh, the idea that this is elitist and then he's yeah. concerned he doesn't want it to end badly in some way. Yeah. Uh, and – to the point of the elitist question, studies uh, by the, the CNA Deutsch, uh, the Catholic News Agency in Germany, and others, uh, you have the Neuer Anfang, which is the a German uh, faithful Catholic group that has been trying to resist all of this. They've made the, the key point that the, the whole agenda of this German synodal path, which is ostensibly supposed to be uh, representing all of the German Catholics, is a tiny cross-section of mostly, almost exclusively, elitist, progressive Catholics who have been trying to drive this process for decades, ignoring the huge demographic changes that have taken place in German Catholicism, and particularly the influx of uh, Eastern European Catholics, of, hmm. of Catholics from Africa and elsewhere. So this supposedly representative body does not, in fact, remotely represent authentic German Catholicism as it is today, but a tiny subset of activists who want to bring change to the church. There's a phrase circulating now, and I'd like you to contextualize it for me. Did Pope Francis actually warn of a dirty schism? Yeah, the, the, the phrase I know has been uh, out there now for a while, and I, uh, Jonathan Liedel at the National Catholic Register uh, has been sort of reporting on uh, the risk of a dirty schism. And I think what, what, we're, what he's trying to get at is that, all right, all of this is going to be happening without the kind of formal break uh, that you might have seen with Luther in 1517, but it's going to be implemented on very local levels – uh, some bishops will uh, apply it, yeah, uh, some yeah. won't, some will be arbitrary in how they apply it. But then there's the risk, uh, and, and this is, I think, something that uh, we need to be very cognizant of, that you could end up in some diocese and in whole stretches of Germany of a kind of underground Catholic church. Right, right. Well, uh, th that is messy. <laughs> that yes, is it is. It, it's is a dirty schism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, participants in the German Snoddle Way back in September of 2022 voted to create a controlling body that would oversee the church in Germany. What, what does that mean? What does that, I mean, how does that relate to the divine constitution of the church, which is Episcopal? Right. Uh, th what they're talking about is a Synodal Council. Uh, that would essentially control the church in Germany and would circumvent uh, the functioning, the proper functionings of Episcopal conferences, which, as, as you know, are, are somewhat hazy in terms of their actual authority. Right. But they're very circumscribed in what they can do in terms of imposing things. So if an Episcopal conference has to go to very great lengths to have any real weight in terms of the application of things in, in, a, in a country – this synodal council should have has none, 
and it has no theological basis, which has already been established. Uh, when the effort was made several years ago to declare that, well, I think it was uh, Cardinal Reinhardt Marx who said, well, all of this will be binding on the German church. And a number of congregations in Rome, starting with uh, the then Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, said, no, there is absolutely no support for this in right. theology or canon law. Yeah. They're simply plowing ahead with a different way of trying to do the same thing, and that is to establish this permanent synodal council. And we know that uh, the Vatican issued a four-page letter just uh, a few days ago right. clarifying that neither the synodal way nor a body appointed by it has competence to establish this at the national diocesan or parish level. You know, it's, it's amazing that they actually have to address this. I mean, you <laughs> yes, know, it is. Why, don't, why don't we get together? I'd like to, we can, why don't we just start a group? We'll say that we are the church and, and say that we have responsibility over the bishops. I, I, who the heck are you? you know? <laughs> hold, it there, hold it there, Matthew. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, taking a look at the interview that Pope Francis had, uh, lasted over an hour, ran to 22,000 words with Nicole Winfield of the Associated Press. And picking up on certain aspects of it, we also want to move on to the uh, article that Carl McElroy published in America magazine, the Jesuit Journal. Uh, but before we go there, uh, I did want to ask about uh, Pope Francis's meeting with Cardinal Zen was, was that imp- planned or was this impromptu? I, I think uh, the sense I have from what I've heard is that it was uh, fairly impromptu, in part because uh, Cardinal Zen wasn't even sure if he was going to be allowed to go to uh, the funeral of Pope Benedict. Yeah, okay. so he was allowed. He was given, I believe, it was a five-day visa. Uh, by Chinese authorities. Mm -hmm. So he had to get from Hong Kong to Rome, attend the funeral, and then get back, uh, or he might potentially have been banned from the country. Yeah, yeah. It gives a sense of just how much stress uh, the Chinese, the the communist regime is is putting Mm -hmm. on uh, the Hong Kong situation. Yeah. So Pope Francis met with him uh, and then was, uh, what I found interesting was that the question that Winfield asked the, the Pope was, uh, you know, the Vatican has continued to defend the agreement in the face of criticism uh, and then makes note that the most vocal critic is Cardinal Joseph Zen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and did we get any hint from Pope Francis? Uh, how he, Does he favor Cardinal Zen? I mean, or is he just trying to stay uh, above it? Uh, how, what do you read into that? Yeah. Uh, so, again, I was reading through the, the transcript uh, in the original Spanish and then also in the English to, to the translation to make sure that I was following it right. Because for those who follow Pope Francis or have for a long time, uh, he is very colloquial yeah. uh, in his answers. Yeah, very, and very there is so. a kind of stream of consciousness to many of the things that he says. Right. So it, it requires a close reading at times. The way that Pope Francis uh, described uh, the meeting and Cardinal Zen is that he is, quote, a charming old man. Mm. And he said with the the Chinese, everyone is charming. When they want to be nice, they are nice. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And uh, 
He said that um, he's in a process that is administrative. Uh, he says and he's talking about the trial, um, and but he says um, he makes note of the fact that uh, Cardinal Zen uh, is a prison chaplain. Uh, that he spends a lot of time in jails uh, and is a friend, as he put it, of the communist guards, of the prisoners. Everyone receives him well. Uh, he is a man of great sympathy. Oh. And But then he says that the fighting part of Zen has kind of disappeared. I'm not saying that uh, it is not there. He is, but he hides behind this pastoral part. So I think he's what, what he's referring to is that in these pastoral visits, uh, that there is uh, this is the pastor at heart. And uh, then there were various books uh, that he gave him. And uh, so, as, as he put it, um, in front of my study upstairs where I have my bedroom and reception room, I, I had the Madonna of Sheshan, hmm. and that was given to him as a gift. Uh, Zen saw it, and like a child began to cry. Wow. And he said he is a tender soul. Wow. That's, that's pretty colorful. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, for a, right. for a private conversation, I mean, you know, he's actually disclosing quite a bit. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, and uh, there was a brief discussion uh, about the next steps in the dialogue with China, uh, taking into account, which is often not asked, uh, about the, the church's relationship with Taiwan. And uh, the Holy Father was, again, fairly straightforward. I mean, he, he reiterated a lot of the things that he's been uh, talking about, uh, about China has to look at the various provinces, which are very diverse. China is a world. Uh, and he went right back to that word that he keeps using, which is uh, you have to walk with patience for China mm-hmm. and that he admires the Chinese people. Okay. Okay. Uh, one last thing about the uh – interview was was he asked about his relationship with uh, Pope Benedict he was uh, and in some ways that was um, one of the most interesting parts of the interview because he's asked uh, uh, not just about uh, the relationship with uh, Pope Emeritus or the late Pope Benedict XVI but also the fact that uh, at least the way this is being spun by the AP that uh, somehow once Pope Benedict had died Francis was under savage attack from all directions and uh, he Pope Francis went back to his, his usual thing, and I'm not dismissive in any way of it, but the, his usual response to that is uh, that uh, he prefers not to have critics. Uh, they are like the hives, which bother you a little bit, but I prefer that they do because it means, as he says, there is freedom to speak. So in specific uh, reference to uh, the Pope Emeritus, however, he notes that uh, he, he clearly misses him. And uh, he refers to him as a kind of father figure, Mm. as uh, somebody that uh, he really looked to almost as a grandfather-like figure, which also I found quite compelling. Uh, As he said, there's only about a 10-year difference between the two of them. Uh, But he makes it clear again that uh, uh, Benedict was very important to him. Did he visit Benedict for counsel at times? Well, that's uh, what he he seems to suggest, uh, that um, he would go on a more regular basis uh, and that uh, he says anyway that uh, Benedict would come to eat at the Casa Santa Marta, which is where the the Holy Father lives. Mm. Uh, But then he said he got sick, sicker and sicker and he stopped coming. Mm. Um, But he said, I I would visit him. Uh, Then he would always bring the cardinals uh, in any kind of a new consistory uh, to, to visit him. 
And then uh, the, the question naturally flowed into uh, how he really viewed him. And he said, I considered him a grandfather with the wisdom of a grandfather. In other words, as he said, it was a kind of existential experience. And the, one of my favorite lines from this is he said that uh, Benedict would ask him questions. Very, very detailed questions. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, I can, yes. I can imagine right. that. Yeah. Well, that would that would uh, be Benedict's uh, the, the strong professorial side of him, uh, forcing students to clarify what they mean by asking them uh, good questions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and I think if there was anyone in the history of the church who could ask very very detailed questions, it would be. Joseph Ratzinger, yep. Pope Benedict XVI. Yeah, yeah, very good. Al, um, any did she did uh, Nicole Winfield ask about the possibility of Pope Francis resigning? Yes, she did, uh, and he was a little more vague about some of it. Uh, and in that sense, one has the the feeling that yes, this is something that he knows he can do. Uh, and what would that look like? He said, uh, uh, being Pope Emeritus, um, that he he thinks that it could happen, but I think he also was noting that there needs to be more structure to it that yeah. might perhaps come with a successor. Yeah. So okay. I think he was a little more cagey, uh, which I get, uh, because of the, the risk of expectations and other things. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to the uh, Cardinal McElroy article in America, yeah. uh, where he is talking about the need for an inclu- you know, a radically inclusive church. I'm looking for my notes right now. Um, I, it's it's amazing to me that he would actually collapse homosexual orientation and homosexual activity into one another. Um, at one point in there, he talks about churches revising the church's teaching on homosexual orientation and activity. Can you lay out? I mean, is it, it, I, the way I, it reads to me is he's actually talking about a cha- wanting a change in church teaching. Yeah. Uh, so, as you note, uh, this was a fairly expansive essay in America Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, and it is very similar in tone in some ways, uh, to something that uh, Cardinal Jean-Claude Olerich yep. uh, of Luxembourg uh, has been saying, yep. uh, that we also hear from some of the German bishops. Uh, that's noteworthy because Jean-Claude Olerich is also the relator general for the upcoming Synod on Synodality. So what he has to say really does matter. And he has called for various changes in the church's approach on sexual morality on the basis of what he says are sociological, scientific foundations uh, of this teaching that are no longer correct. I include that because I think we're seeing something similar uh, in Cardinal McElroy's approach. Mm-hmm. He tends to come at it more from a pastoral uh, direction. And what he's basically saying uh, is that there this idea that he objects to traditional Catholic teaching that all sexual actions, as he puts it, outside of marriage are so gravely evil that they constitute objectively an action that can sever a believer's relationship with God. In other words, mortal a sin. mortal sin. Right. Right. He says that this objection should be faced head on. And 
Then he goes on to write that the distinction between orientation and activity cannot be the principal focus for a pastoral embrace because it inevitably suggests dividing the LGBT community into those who refrain from sexual activity and those who do not. So he says, the dignity of every person as a child of God struggling in this world and the loving outreach of God must be the heart, soul, face, and substance of the church's stance and pastoral action. So I'll let you decide what exactly he's proposing here. Yeah. I mean, well, this this has gone on for a long time where uh, teachers uh, in the church, uh, some of them as, you know, respected as uh, uh, McElroy, uh, wearing a, wearing the red hat, says that we be, need to be more radically inclusive and a more welcoming place for all kinds of folks, women, LGBTQ, um, divorced, civilly remarried people. Um, but when you begin to press, exactly what do you mean by radical inclusivity? Uh, how? What do you mean by becoming a more welcoming and inclusive church? Are you saying that we abandon the teaching that homosexual acts are incompatible with God's design mm-hmm. for human sexuality? That's not a hard question uh, to answer. Is that what you're saying? And I, I don't understand why they continue to talk about radical inclusivity when they can't get around to asking, really, what is the foundational question? We're not, we're not, Catholics I know are not especially hostile to people of same-sex orientation. I mean, what we're concerned about is the church's fidelity to its own teaching, you know? Right. So why can't, why won't they get up front on this and tell us what they mean exactly? Well, and you can also expand this out uh, to all areas of sexual sin of Catholic teaching and on sexual morality and uh, the Christian life. So if we look at um, a a distinction between an orientation, a disposition, a desire, a habit, particular act, uh, all of these things, uh, it's it's fundamental. And so what you end up having happen here uh, is that as we have seen with things like Obergefell and now Bostock, where you utilize what is something very specific, like same-sex marriage and now the LGBTQ gender ideology, Mm -hmm. that is a a form of leverage that can wedge your way into all of Catholic sexual morality. And that, that I think, also rests at the heart of one of the things that we're seeing with the German synodal path, where they are unraveling all aspects of the church's teachings, rightly so, and, and, and the church's teachings are, are right on human sexuality. But this is, this is the wedge yeah. by no, which they're doing it. I, I, I agree. It look, certainly looks that way. You know, it, it, certainly all are welcome, but they're welcome on Christ's terms, not their own. And I think we have to keep that in mind. I just, I, there's something slightly devious about this in my mind. There's an attempt to smuggle in to our radical inclusivity and acceptance of what have historically traditionally been understood as immoral acts. And I, right. I just think that's nasty stuff. Nasty. And this brings us directly back uh, to this German synodal way yep. because they want this as the first and one of the most important topics of discussion in October this year and next. Yeah. 
in the Synod on Synodality. Well, we'll continue the conversation. Matthew, thank you so much for being with me today. Privilege to be with you, always. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, uh, as I said uh, in the commentary earlier, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, read it and be ready to stand firm. 